0: Before you're seated, I'd like us to uh, read Psalm 23 together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. You may be seated. I started reading the Bible um, the summer that I turned 15. Never had one before then. Uh, That was when... uh, The Lord moved us across town and there was a Bible study going on down the street and started attending the Bible study and started going to church with a friend across the street and uh, in the course of my Bible reading, that was my first exposure to the 23rd Psalm. As a middle teenager, it was nice poetry, (laughs) It didn't mean a whole lot to me, but I can tell you that as I've gotten older, it means more and more. I reflect on the journey thus far, and I can see the ways the Lord has shepherded me in life and in ministry. There's an old story about uh, a priest who was celebrating his 50th anniversary of his ordination. And for the occasion, he had invited his personal friend, Richard Burton, to come and recite his favorite psalm, which was 23. Richard Burton responded he was willing to do so only if the priest would recite it after he was done. At the appointed time, Richard Burton came and he proclaimed the popular psalm, oratorical majesty, you know, that deep voice, actors training. The congregation immediately applauded. And then this humble pastor stood up and he began to recite from heart this beloved psalm. And after he had finished his not-so-nearly professional recitation, the congregation was in a hushed awe some were moved to tears and someone leaned over and asked richard burton why why do you think there's such a difference in response <laughs> it's the legend goes richard burton said because i know the psalm but my friend knows the shepherd do you know the shepherd well, my hope is that in the five weeks of this series, we'll all get to know the shepherd a little bit better. David's first words of the song were, the Lord. Now that's the Lord in all capitals, which means it's not meaning Adonai, master, boss, but Yahweh. God's personal name, if you will. This is the name by which God introduced himself to Moses. You recall the story. God appeared in a burning bush in the desert. Life was boring enough for Moses that even though bushes burned up all the time in the desert, this one caught his attention because it didn't burn out. That's a pretty boring life. Moses approached the bush, and God spoke, calling him in closer, and then God identified himself. In Exodus 3, 6, it says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then God told him why he called him over. God was sending him to Pharaoh to secure the release of God's people, the people of Israel. If you've ever read Exodus chapter 3, you know Moses wasn't too keen on the idea. And he's going to try to get out of it. And he had lots of excuses that come later. But his first questionable, his first question was reasonable. Uh, he asked God, in verse 13, Moses said to, to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of Canaan, uh, of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, God had made a covenant with Abraham, and he renewed it with Isaac and with Jacob, that Abraham's descendants through Isaac would be his chosen people and would inherit this land. When Moses asked God's name, God identified his name with his covenant promises. What does his name mean? I am who I am. Well, it says several things about God. The one that stands out to me, first and foremost, is that Moses had no category to understand who God was. God didn't say, I am the creator of all things, or I am the all-powerful one. Even though both of those things would have been true, but neither of them was sufficient. They were too limited for what Moses was asking. God is far more than creator. He is far more than just powerful. But see, the problem is God is far more than anything that we could say about him. He doesn't fit in our box of comprehension. I am who I am, told Moses not to try to comprehend, just accept him for who he revealed himself to be. But in the name is also a revelation that God is the self-existent one. In other words, he doesn't come from anyone or anything else. He had no beginning He doesn't need anything outside of himself to sustain him. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need drink. He doesn't need air. It doesn't matter what temperature it is. He doesn't need love. He doesn't need worship. He is fully sufficient within himself to exist forever. Now, that means he has all power because otherwise something else could come along and threaten his existence, but there is none like him. There is none to compare. There are no equals. I am who I am. That's the name that God gave in connection with his covenant with his people. The self-existent one who defies definition has entered into a covenant with the people that he chose through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That means the covenant cannot be disrupted because no one can disrupt God. What he has promised to do, he does. This is the one that David says is his shepherd. David, David who was called from shepherding the sheep to be anointed the second king of Israel. David whom God had led in battle with lions and bears and giants and Philistines and Ammonites and Moabites, the list goes on. David who led his people from life, as a loosely connected group of tribes to the ruling power of the region. This, David says, the one who shepherded him while he was shepherding these people is the Lord. David knows what it is to be a shepherd and he knows what it is to be the Lord's sheep. He's the one that God used to give us this song. And he says simply, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. To be the Lord's sheep is to not lack what I am in need of. As his chosen one, he will give me everything that I need to fulfill his purpose for me because he Chose me. The Lord Jesus picked up the image of shepherd in Luke 15 when he said, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. I found my sheep who was lost. Just so, Jesus said. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You see, lost sheep need to be found. That's their first need. Jesus says any shepherd would go after his lost sheep. But in John 10, he says he will do the ultimate. In verse 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the new covenant that we celebrate every first Sunday when we take communion. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is for you. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The Son of God, Jesus, came after us when we were lost. And he laid down his life so that we might have abundant life. Life in relationship with God. Everlasting life. Life in God's favor. When we read Psalm 23, it speaks to us in our covenant just like it spoke to David in his covenant. So David told us who the shepherd is. That he'll make sure that we don't lack what we need. The rest of the psalm then describes the shepherd's provision for the sheep. And it begins with the Lord providing places for us to be strengthened. Verse 2 says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. To appreciate what David is saying, you need to take a look at what typical grazing places looked like. Israel had two seasons. Basically, you could call one the dry, hot season and the other the wet, rainy season, a little bit cooler. Do we have the images? They? There we go. That's pasture most of the year in Israel. Option two, if you happen to be coming down between some some paths in the hills, you can flip up the next one. Uh, You you get a little bit of, you know, they caught a little moisture. You could get a little greenness going in. But here was the challenge. Israel is a small country. And it had people to feed. So the priority in land use went to farming. Pasture land was what was not useful for farming. So the shepherds had to take the sheep where they could to find and enjoy the pastures to be fed. But after a good hard rain, the fields would sprout green. And if a shepherd had his flock in the right place at the right time, the sheep would enjoy the luxury of green pastures. David says the Lord gets his sheep to green pastures. Doesn't say it's, we're there all the time. Honestly, most of life is brown grass. You know what I mean? It's it's the mediocre. It's the routine. You get up, you get dressed for the day. You take the commute. You go to school. You go to work. You 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 tend to the home. You tend to the children. And the day ends. You go to sleep, and you get up the next day, and you do it again. That most of life is routine. Amen. Brown grass it's it's nourishing it's 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 okay isn't it? but but every now and then we get worn down by the brown grass we we get worn down by the schedule we get worn down by the exceptions and it it, it wears on us and our shepherd knows that and in those seasons he's willing to take us if we will trust him, to green pastures. But David didn't say, he makes me graze in green pastures. He said, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Philip Keller is a pastor who spent eight years as a shepherd. He wrote of the lessons he learned in the book called Uh, A shepherd looks at Psalm 23. Sheep, he says, do not lie down easily. In fact, it says, it is almost impossible for them to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. Owing to their timidity, they refuse to lie down unless they are free of all fear. Because of the social behavior within a flock of sheep, they will not lie down unless they are free from friction with others of their kind. That's always funny to me because I'm like, how does, how does sheep have friction? <laughs> you know, you didn't buy at me when I went by. I, just, I have no idea. I guess you had to be a shepherd to get that. Okay, But anyway, moving on. If tormented by flies or parasites, sheep will not lie down. Only when free of these pests can they relax. And lastly, sheep will not lie down as long as they feel in need of finding food. So they have to be free from hunger. So we got fear, we got friction, we got flies, and we got food. Four things that can keep sheep on their feet. But with the Lord as a shepherd, David says he lies down. God takes care of these things. God knows what it takes to get sheep to lie down, and he addresses it. The Lord took care of David, and he rested. Can I ask you what gets in the way of your rest I'll tell you what gets in the way of of mine. So when I feel like my life is out of control or overwhelming, I don't rest real, real well. When wrong thoughts and sinful desires are buzzing around my head, I don't rest. When I'm at odds with people I care about, it's difficult. Rest, And though I don't like to admit this, when I feel like my needs are not being met, I get agitated. Rest doesn't come very well. See, the difference between me and sheep is that sheep trust their shepherd, but I don't always trust mine. I think more thoughts than sheep think. I want more things than sheep want. And I am more easily dissatisfied with my shepherd than sheep are. When he doesn't shepherd me the way I think I ought to be shepherded, I may choose not to trust him and take things in my own hands, go my own way. But then that feeling of agitation settles into my heart, and I can't lie down. How many ways do we explain away that feeling of unrest? How many excuses do we give ourselves? I'm just trying to deal with life. Well, there's there's just so much uncertainty in the world. I, I've said this. I've hear it from parents all the time. Well, I need to get the kids through school, and then I can attend to some of these other things. Or, well, nobody else is gonna pay the bills. My job is important and it's demanding. I need to give it my time and attention. Or, why would God let all this happen to me? The list goes on. But the issue at the core of it is that we don't trust the shepherd. We don't come to him and let him meet our needs according to his wisdom, his goodness, his timing. We tell him what we need him to do for us. Let me give you an example from the Butler family files. This is a number of years ago. We were in need of a car. We had a Caprice estate wagon, venerable old beast, and it was held together by rust, but it was big enough to carry a family of seven it was probably a 1980 model and it was about 1998 we knew that our car was going to die in the near future we had been praying for another car we had heard that we should pray specifically so we were telling God this make this model this color you know we prayed for about a year no answer but God was speaking He impressed on me that I should trust him to provide what we needed instead of telling him what we needed. So we changed our prayer. God, we're in need of a vehicle. Would you provide a vehicle? I am not exaggerating or making up. A few months later, a friend of mine approached me after church and said that God had told him to sell me his three-year-old Toyota Previa for eleven dollars. Wow. Who am I to argue with God? I reached in my pocket, <laughs> handed him eleven dollars. <laughs> this this van was larger, better equipped, more dependable than the one that we have been asking for by name, and it served our family. Wonderfully, for several years. We lost it in an accident. Nobody got hurt, but the van was totaled. And when we got the insurance money, rather than remember the lesson in trust that we had learned in receiving that van, we just went out and replaced it. And what we bought cost us tons of money from the day we got it. We hadn't trusted the shepherd, and we didn't lie down in his green pastures. He provides. Will we lie down? Our shepherd provides green pastures for our rest, and he also provides still waters. So back to Philip Keller. Not going to read a passage here, but he tells us that most of the water that sheep need, they get from grazing the grass, because they graze while the dew is still on the grass, if they can get out early enough. But the Middle Eastern sun is hot, and so sometimes they can't get to the, to the pasture land before the sun has evaporated the dew. And when that happens, they need to drink. But sheep are difficult to please. They won't drink from a noisy stream because they're timid, but they don't like stagnant water either. So the water needs to be moving, but quietly, and it needs to be clean and fresh. Otherwise, the sheep pick up parasites and other ailments, and that leaves them unsettled. Now, one of the spiritual dangers of our information age is that we have access to tons of teaching and preaching and writing. You can turn on the TV, the computer, the radio, listen to any one of hundreds of preachers and teachers. Now, praise the Lord. Many of them are true to God's word and handle it well. But there's others that fall into different categories. Some are just poorly trained. They mean well, but they just get lost in how to handle the scriptures. Some are just mistaken. They just misunderstand it. And some are just... False teachers. When you drink from their stream, you get spiritually unsettled. There have been times in my ministry as pastor that I have encouraged people, you just need to turn that ministry off. You need to stop listening to that. It's not about just listen to me. I mean, come on. I'm one pastor of a dozen at Moody Church. <laughs> this is this, and, and and we fellowship with. We support other ministries. It, this is not about a, a power grab. No, what this is about is that God says, pastors, watch for your souls, according to Hebrews thirteen. That we care, and your pastor knows you. I I can't tell you the number of times in my life that. My pastor, and even today, I mean, Pastor Lutzer, you know, he's still here occasionally, and I'll go up and sit with him for a few minutes, and we'll talk about something. He's my pastor, and he speaks into my life, and it directs me, and it settles me. That's what pastors are for. Sometimes we have to direct you away from some of what's available out there because not everything will help you in your walk with God. Attending your church, reading and studying God's word, spending time in his presence, either with others or by yourself, these are all good sources of nourishment. When he was tempted to turn stones into bread, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I'm not about to tell you anything new. Just about to remind you. But what are some of the ways that God's word nourishes us? Well, these won't be on the screen. I'm just going to run through them quickly. But God's word teaches us. We learn in it that what God intended for us. We learn of his goodness. We learn of his love for us. We learn that Satan seeks to rob us, deceive us, entrap us, so that we don't experience God and his love. It teaches us God's ways so that we aren't left wandering through life on our own, trying to find a way to make life work for us. It teaches us how to relate to others in a way that glorifies God, that builds other people up, and makes us a blessing. So it teaches us. Now, it also reminds us. It reminds us that we're made in the image of God. It reminds us that we fell into sin and that God sent his son to redeem us and to make us new from the inside out. It reminds us that when we die, life doesn't end. We will be with him to enjoy his goodness toward us forever. It reminds us that we love him because he first loved us. It reminds us that God is at work for our good in every aspect of our lives, even in the things that are not good in and of themselves tells us that he is at work in us so that we can desire and do what is pleasing to him. It reminds us that we are not, sorry, it reminds us that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So we need to trust him and follow him even at times when it doesn't make sense to us because we can't think the thoughts that he can think. When we sin, it reminds us Jesus advocates for us. And we need only to own our sin before God to be forgiven and cleansed. It reminds us that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. It teaches us, it reminds us, it corrects us. When we go our own way, it shows us our error. Amen? When we've been deceived by Satan's lies and misrepresentation, it exposes his deception so that we can be set free and can turn to God. When we believe wrong things about God, it shows us what is true about him. And then finally, it encourages us. See, God has made many promises to us in his word, and we we need the reminders. We need to get to know God, who he is, how he loves us. It encourages us because it shows us how he works in the world and in our lives so that we can see his hand guiding us, providing for us, protecting us. When we fall, he's ready to receive us back. me say that again, when we fall. In other words, when we sin, when we get stiff-necked and rebel, when we get stupid. He's ready to receive us back. We only need come and confess it. He wants to work through us to bless others with salvation, with discipling, with encouragement, with restoration, and so on. God nourishes his people through his word, but he also nourishes us through his presence. When we come to him in prayer and worship, in church or in private, have you had the experience where, where you came to church and you were not good? you know your heart and mind just were in a dark place. Anybody came to church that way? Or is it just me? Okay, I got a couple honest people in the house. Okay. (laughs) There's something stuck. Something I, I can't quite work through, I can't make sense of, I'm not quite able to let go of. It's just bothering me. Maybe there's a sin that I'm just not ready to give up yet. A situation that I, I just haven't been able somehow to bring myself to trust God with. Some person that just, you know, they got on my reserve nerve and, you know, that's the nerve. That when they get on your nerves and so you move those out the way and you bring out the reserve nerve and they get on those too. That, that, that's the reserve nerve. And just like, I, I, I'm supposed to love this person. I'm supposed to be at peace with this person. I'm... I, I, it says love covers a multitude of sins. God, I'd, my, my, my love must have shrunk because it's not covering. Uh, and, and we come to worship. And it's not because we're singing songs that pertain to the issue at hand. It's not because the message directly addressed that thing. But sometimes just being in the presence of God with his people, just when I'm in that quiet time settling my heart before the Lord, that He so moves in us that something goes, click, and the burden rolls off. The question is answered. I can forgive. I can love. I can trust. Because when we come into God's presence, God nourishes us. You see, the Lord is our shepherd. He makes provision for us. And David's words point us forward to what the Lord Jesus taught. In Matthew 6, Jesus reminds us, birds don't produce any food, but God still feeds them. Flowers don't weave any cloth. God clothes them fabulously. And if that's how God cares for birds and flowers, Jesus says to us in Matthew 6, 31, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom. And his righteousness and all these things, what you need will be given to you as well because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The question then becomes, is the Lord your shepherd? Now, there's two sides of that question. One, the first is Jesus, as the good shepherd, came to give his life for the sheep. We sinned. He didn't. So he offered his infinite, eternal, perfect, righteous life on the cross as our substitute. Paid the debt that we owed so that we could receive the life that he offers if we're willing to acknowledge I'm not good enough, I never will be, Jesus, you've done it for me, I receive your free gift. Then we become his sheep. If you need to do that, in a few minutes, there's going to be prayer partners right here on this side. Talk to them. If you're already clear that you need to take care of that, then right where you're sitting, you can just say, Lord Jesus, I I, I recognize. I've been holding off on this. I've been making excuses. I can't get rid of my sin. I am out of fellowship with God. I am wrong. I need the righteousness that only you can provide. He says, if you believe, he'll save you. Just that straightforward. Now, there's another side. To you and the Lord and shepherding, and that is that you, you are one of his sheep. But you you've you've wandered off. You you decided you didn't like the way he was shepherding you, so you took things into your own hands and you went your own way. And now you, you know, you got flies and you got friction and <laughs> you you got, you got issues, right? <laughs> life, is, life is just not, not going. You, you can tell. You, you know that agitation is in your soul. You, you, you're not motivated to come before God. There are things that you're not willing to let go. He's saying to you, come. Come to me. Come to me. I am ready to receive you. I am ready to shepherd you again. Trust me with your life. Trust me with who you are. Trust me to provide what you need in my wisdom and my goodness and my timing. And so the offer is generous. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He gives me nourishment. He gives me rest. Will I Receive it from him. That's his invitation. Let's pray. We are reminded over and over again how good you are. The first couple of verses of this psalm already make plain to us that you you care. You are with us. You are at work in us. You are pursuing us when we Stray away, you give your life for us when we're in sin. What you desire for us is that we would trust you so that you can show us how good you are as our shepherd. Father, forgive us for our hard-headedness for our slowness. Draw us back to you. Do what you need to do to bring us to the end of our excuses so that we come. But Father, we also want to say thank you. Thank you because we have experienced your goodness. Thank you because we have an open door to come to you because of what our shepherd, the Lord Jesus, has done for us. Thank you, Because you love us. Thank you because you don't leave us. You don't give up on us. You don't kick us to the curb. You don't forget about us. But you're there to encourage us, to strengthen us, to nourish us, to nurture us, to correct us, to guide us, to use us to be a blessing to others. This is the good God that you are. We count it a privilege to be your sheep. We give you praise as our shepherd through Jesus, our Lord. Amen.